Are you a law firm wanting to grow? Then the Practice Insider podcast is for you. With every episode, hear from legal practice insiders talk about the things you need to know to better manage, market and grow your legal practice. Now, here are your hosts, Dan Toombs and Ben Deverson. Welcome to this edition of the uh, Practice Insiders podcast. Uh, my pleasure again to be with uh, Ben Deverson from Organized. How are you doing, Ben? Dan, I'm well, mate. Yourself? I'm very well. You have been very busy. Uh, exponential growth for Organized with a, with a couple more recruits since we last spoke. Yeah, no, we're now at uh, four humans. Uh, myself plus three uh, exceptionally good staff members. So, yeah, no, we're enjoying a good period, uh, getting some great traction on new clients and some new products we've got rolled out there. So, uh, no, having a good time. Today, uh, where were you, in fact, talk to Jason Poplier? Uh, now, you and I both know Jason relatively well. I, I did some work with Jason in his, uh, in his former employment, and you, of course, uh, have him as your advisor with Organized. And undoubtedly, we've probably got mutual clients. Absolutely. Um, Jason is a chartered accountant, uh, has an MBA too, managing director of Odyssey Advisors uh, these days. And most of Jason's clients, not all, but most of Jason's clients operate in that professional service as well. Um, and uh, including some law firms. Uh, so we do uh, do some referrals between some of our clients and uh, often I'll have startup firms who want to understand things like appropriate structuring and those sort of things that I'll refer to Jason from a tax perspective. And uh, yeah, no, he's, he's developed a great business with him and his team there. Mate, it's so one of the things that you know you and I are sort of bang on often about, and that's the importance of uh, getting a practice insider involved with your firm. And, and Jason's certainly one of those. You know, I'd, I'd hate to think, uh, you know, for those particular legal practices that are growth conscious or growth orientated, that they end up with an accounting firm that just doesn't get legal practices because there is some really weird nuances to the legal industry, isn't there? Absolutely, and it, it is interesting in the context of. Uh, you know, structure and regulation. Look, the legal sector is probably one of the most uh, regulated professions out there. Um, and when it comes to the right structuring, when it comes to the right business advice, you know, as we've often said, you've got to surround yourself with good people. Uh, but that doesn't always mean uh, having those people employed. It's the likes of uh, Jason as an advisor uh, the likes of you and your team in that digital marketing space, the likes of myself and my team in that consulting and operations space. Um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, as we, you and I, share clients as well, I think we find that the clients that actually do invest in that kind of advice uh, and get it at a good price with people who do that for a living, uh, I think they, honestly, I think they succeed. So, Ben, I'll hand it across to you to uh, introduce Jason and, of course, the three things that he's going to uh, emphasise in today's chat. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, interesting chat. Uh, what I asked uh, of Jason was his views on what he believed was the three to five key characteristics of a high-performing law firm. Uh, in the end, we, we dissected three. Uh, and without, you know, getting too much into it, effectively they come down to governance structures and having the right uh, structure within your firm in terms of fee earning and support staff, and lastly around that specialisation piece we've talked about. So, um, yeah, I think we cut to it now. Let our listeners hear what, what Jason had to say. Fantastic. 
And I'm here with Jason Papelio, and Jason is the Managing Director of Odyssey Advisors. And Jason is a Chartered Accountant by Trade, MBA as well. And in Jason's day-to-day life, he's actually an expert in all things professional services from business advisory and the accounting side of the world. So welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. And, uh, and thanks for having me. Now, just for our listeners' benefit, Jason and I have uh, a fairly significant background together. Uh, we used to actually live in the same office. Uh, and Jason actually is also the business advisor for Organised. So I, I take Jason's advice daily on running my business. But I also take a lot of insight from Jason into the operations and best practice of legal firms. So uh, given that Jason and I have both shared and referred clients to one another in the past, Jason, in my view, was a fantastic contributor to the to the uh, podcast today. So, Jason, what I'm keen to talk about from your perspective is what you see as best practice. And as you've indicated, um, we've got a significant amount of shared clients and a significant amount of work we understand that we both do. But from your perspective, can you tell me the three, maybe five key characteristics that you see in high-performing law firms? Yes. Uh, well, th- thanks for the intro, Ben. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty nice intro to, to lead lead with. Um, three to five characteristics. So I think uh, one of the first ones would be uh, governance structures. Um, I've been uh, the reason I say that uh, of late. I've been having to to review and, and put in place. Um, more flexibility uh, and also rigid structures um, in in law firms across across Australia, more in particular the East Coast. And I'll go into a little bit more detail. So what I mean by that is um, traditionally uh, partners were the decision makers on all things related to to their own divisions and their own teams. And and what was happening or what I've seen happen is a lot of cross sharing of roles and a lot of wastage in decision-making uh, or lack of decision-making because of it um, across the board in the, in the firm. Um, so instead of having the right people with the right skill sets making the decisions on a day-to-day basis, I'm not talking about the strategy and where the vision is of the firm. That's always should be uh, should be set at, at an equity level. I'm talking about the day-to-day so you can get on and just, and just make sure your firm's operating as efficiently as it should be. Um, that's that's one of the uh, one of the major characteristics of a high performing firm, and I've got examples, um, you know, of uh, a sole equity um, firm who who um, was turning over uh, over ten million at a GP margin of close to fifty uh, percent uh, before he then put on some new equity partners, and he was able to do that. Um, because he had these structures in place and he was able just to focus on what he loved doing and what he was passionate about doing, uh, which is a particular type of specialty in law, and he was able to bill a million dollars himself um, in addition oh, in, in contribution to to that. Um, uh, it was about 11 million turnover. So that would be my first one, Ben. Secondly, um, I would say a right mix of, uh, of, of professional fee earners and admin support. So what I've found in, in firms, uh, there are the two top heavy or the two bottom heavy, and they don't have that, that special mix of uh, right efficiency levels and right leverage. Mm-hmm. So what I'm finding at the moment is um, firms might be looking at price for a, for a particular um, 
uh, new lawyer or graduate versus a senior associate. Um, you know, they're looking at a at a remuneration for that employee of you know sixty to seventy versus let's call it somewhere between one hundred and twenty to one hundred and sixty. Uh, but reality is, if you have the right um, senior associate, they can contribute so much more to your firm. Uh, I've seen some very high-performing senior associates that um, have billed almost 500K in their own right. Mm. Uh, and when I say bill, I mean collected, not uh, not hypothetical. And you're better off building a team that's high-performing around with those levels that can then constantly train and, and build those uh, employees up. Um, the mix of what that looks like will depend on the legal firm itself. So, for instance, if you're a um, uh, deal with high-level litigation, you might need more top-level uh, employees uh, versus, let's say, a family law department or a transactional commercial department. You might need a bit, a bit more of a balance and have have a lot more juniors. Um, the the mix the mix. In 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 my, in my sense, for a traditional type of firm, and I don't want to cliche the traditional, might be a partner, um, and two associates or a senior associate and an associate, and then possibly a graduate who gets trained by by the partner as well as the associates for good practice and some sort of admin support if the technology in the firm um, isn't up to up to where it needs to be. And the third. Um, Key key characteristic of a high performing firm is understanding what the what services they're actually selling, and what I mean by that is they're they're able to articulate to uh, to anyone out in the public what exactly uh, that particular firm specialises in, and and why um, why someone should come to them for their services. And I I, I usually use the term of uh, productizing. Um, because what I mean by productizing, you can articulate it as if you're selling that service. And the reason that's important, because if you can articulate that down, then you can actually market um, that product or service to the ideal clientele uh, that you want. Um, if you can articulate that to the ideal clientele, you can evolve that service and product to, to essentially generate more leads and um, take hold of your of your pipeline management. Um, on the flip side, if you're able to articulate what you do, you can actually um, standardise milestones in in what's what's needed in in delivering that advice, and you will actually be able to uh, turn advice pieces into almost like little mini projects mm -hmm. where you can see efficiency breakdowns um, within the firm for that particular type of advice. Oh, I know that certain types of advice will be ad hoc, but um, uh, but there will still be sections uh, that can be standardised. So by uh, by being able to articulate what um, service or services, range of services your uh, firm actually offers out into the public, you'll get the benefit of generating more leads uh, because you'll you'll be better equipped to to finding and articulating uh, what your firm does compared to your competitors. But on the other side, you should be able to identify the inefficiencies in delivering that work and gain that um, that production efficiency percentage up. And why that's important is because you can do more work with less people. Um, and then as you add um, additional work to your, your employee mix, you'll constantly be more efficient at, at mm -hmm. generating that work. 
So they're probably the first three that um, are key characteristics that um, that are generalised across any legal firm. There's no there's there's no definition from a, from a sole practitioner right up to a forty partner practice. Um, what you can do is you can break those concepts down to individual teams or individual departments uh, and treat them like um, mini teams uh, that would be similar to to a sole practitioner. So they're the first three that pop into my mind, uh, Ben. Okay. And look, uh, great tips, uh, Jace. And, you know, just to summarise again, so we have effectively uh, the governance uh, model and effectively where the decisions are being made and at what level within the practice we have a good mix of fee earner and administrative slash support staff, and then we have uh, the articulation of the uh, services the firm is providing, which enables that, them to leverage that understanding in their marketing and business development. Um, each of those three items, in my view, are probably worthy of their own podcast, and we probably will invite you back, Jace, at some point to discuss these in more detail, but... I just want to pick up on the first one a little bit more around governance, and this is something that we see quite considerably in our lives at Organise, and that is um, decisions being made within the firm that ought to be made by different roles or in different seats. Uh, an example might be uh, the threshold of a particular disbursement or cost. Um, in your experience, uh, do you see the firms that are the most agile push decision-making down as low as possible? Yeah, good question, Ben. Um, I, I would say it would depend on the firm and its nature. So um, so if they're, if they're relatively agile but have made bad decisions in the past, what they might do is they might put um, more thresholds in place. Um, but what, what I found is, is with a, a lot of agile firms, what they'll do is they'll have a hard a hard close or a hard um, uh, top-level disbursement amount mm. and won't move from that. Mm. Uh, and then after that, so people, uh, what, what, essentially what I'm saying is uh, there's a clear defined set of rules and those set of rules don't move, which means uh, that the decision-making over and above those rules uh, are minimised yeah. um, and it enables that firm to be uh, to be. Uh, to be to be agile and and that might be per transaction mm-hmm. um, so f- given an example uh, it might be that there there's multiple um, credit cards in um, in a uh, in an organization and um, and a senior a senior associate um, or a special counsel someone who's not a partner and, and is not a special uh, sorry, not a salary partner or an equity partner, may have the ability in a more agile firm to, to make disbursement decisions. Yeah. And um, that's that's probably uh, not really heard of in, in a traditional type sense where the partner had to approve everything. But in an agile firm, um, at the end of the day, that person is, is a high, highly um, capable professional. And I use the word professional um, because uh, of... I would expect a professional to be be able to make decisions that that are, will benefit the firm as well as themselves. So we're, we've got to put an element of trust here, um, and if it aligns with what their their role description is, it's recoverable and it ticks all the all the uh, all the boxes of why a disbursement should be should be paid, mm-hmm. and and when you're going to recover. I, I don't think there should be any hindrance in in enabling that because all that does is it lowers 
uh, it, it pushes the matter out, so you don't get you don't get to close your matter as fast. Um, and also, when that payment's made, there's a bit of um, uh, friction and disruption to the matter itself. So the chance of collecting that cash flow after making that decision. Uh, gets blown out in terms of days as well. So if you, if you make that process as easy as possible, know that it's going to be recoverable. You can communicate that effectively to the client. And if you have money in trust uh, with milestones attached to your um, cost agreements, uh, that should just be a byproduct of collection. Um, and and Ben, your experience uh, in this in this field of of cash flow, I know I'm sort of um, going off on a slight tangent. But um, in, in your past life, you were very uh, efficient at collecting your, your, your billing uh, or cash in your billing practices. Yeah, and, and look, there are so many elements to an effective cash flow environment from client communication to uh, speed of billing and all those various things. But, I mean, you make a very good point that there should be hard and fast rules. And one of the things that we often um, suggest to our clients at Lorganise is to have some form of delegation schedule or uh, some form of uh, policy in relation to where decisions can be made both financially and non-financially, for instance, uh, you know, who can commit the firm to certain activities, et cetera. But often I will uh, reflect upon a great article written by a good friend of mine, Alastair Marshall from Professional Services Business Development. And Alastair, if you're listening, um, big shout out to you. Alastair wrote a, a great article a couple of years ago called How Many Lawyers Does It Take to Buy an Office Chair? Um, and it's a really good narrative on where decisions are made in law practices and, and, and how operational decisions, for instance, in relation to stationary costs and those sort of things and how they happen. Because it's, it's interesting to see how regularly uh, firms can be tied up or let, let's just say the managing partner's time is tied up by hmm. making decisions in relation to the office works invoice. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's ridiculous looking back from a, a, or um, look as a, as a third party looking in, sorry, uh, or reflecting back if, if you're a partner and you've made those sort of decisions in the past. Um, w- what I do uh, with, with all, all um, the legal firms that I consult to is I set more uh, onerous um, forecasts or budgets uh, at the start of the year. And in that, we'll have uh, what we're expecting to spend on, let's say, stationary or um, or other costs on a day-to-day basis, let's say, incidentals, tea, coffee, uh, water for the office. Um, that as long as it's within the, in the range, uh, that decision should just be automatic and it should um, a partner shouldn't be making a decision on how much to spend on on biscuits or, or tea uh, in a given month or a given week. Mm-hmm. Um, I still see that on, on, on the odd occasion and that's more of a, um, a bad reflection on the traits of, of a particular partner who can't let go of control. Yeah. Um, but there are definitely decisions that shouldn't be made at certain levels Um and by by reflecting on on what you're trying to achieve and and enabling someone who's highly capable and who knows more about those particular decisions because they're surrounded by it on a more regular basis than what you are, um, enabling them to do so uh, will free up a significant amount of time over the course of the year. Yeah, great tips. Um, Jace, just really quickly on... The I'm going to skip the middle one. I think we can go through 
the mix of, of fee earners and uh, support staff, not to mention the nature of those fee-earning staff in a mm. great amount of detail in a separate podcast. But I want to go to the last item you raised, which was the understanding of services. So we are seeing in the legal industry this real take-up of the niche law firm, the mm -hmm. very specialist law firm. And it's not uncommon to see, and it's actually not revolutionary in many respects because we've seen family law, we've seen employment law firms for many, many years. But uh, firms are becoming even more niche in, in industry specialisation. Uh, yep. We've got firms that specialise in construction law. Uh, we've got firms that specialise in, uh, for instance, uh, social media law. Uh, so... Yep. Um, what do you think in terms of that style of change that's happening in the market and how that actually supports those firms in getting their product uh, understood? Yeah, good, good, good question, Ben. Um, I, I think uh, there's going to be more and more uh, specialties that, that um, uh, specialist law firms, um, and let's let's brand them as um, as a more of a boutique offering versus um, uh, versus the traditional home home practice uh, where you might have just gone to to a, a particular lawyer um, who who would do everything relating to your family um, one one of the things uh, that I mentioned earlier was that being able to articulate what services you offer means that you'll be able to um, find uh, the ideal customer that you're looking for, for, for what, what type of service that you're offering as well as being more efficient. Reality is um, if you specialise in your niche, you will have a greater understanding of what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis for your clients and the mix of, of, uh, of levels of that versus a, a generalist uh, legal firm. Yep. Um, it doesn't mean if you specialise, you're only a sole practitioner or a, a dual partner. I've seen um, national legal firms niche and do it extremely well. That example I used of that very, very high-performing um, legal firm uh, turning over, let's say, 11 to 12 million uh, profits of over six sole equity partner, that was a specialty legal practice. Yep. Um, especially legal practice that would have over 50 staff. So for me, that is a reasonable size legal practice. You know, they had uh, three salary partners. Um, it wasn't just a, a sole a sole partner. Uh, subsequently, there's there's more equity there's more equity partners now, and it's still highly profitable. But again, uh, key focus in a particular industry, and offers a range of services to that industry. So they know that industry in and out, and they know their ideal client within that industry. So they their their targeting um, and their relationships they can build to that particular industry is just compounding on a year-by-year -year basis. So their foothold in that specialty is quite strong. Great. Good point. Uh, and understanding that product and therefore articulating it in their marketing and revenue strategy is, is in my view, a very, very strong aspect of a firm that can say, here's the gap we fill in the market, here's the, the need that we service for you, you know, come and see us. Exactly, exactly. And and then if they have any questions, uh, it's almost like you go on autopilot and you can clearly articulate what the process would be post um, 
post the initial conversations, uh, which I would say is part of the onboarding or the sales process. So if you can articulate what you do and then a client comes to you and asks you questions about how does that look and you're able to articulate the process of delivering that work, you've already you've already partly sold them. They're pretty much uh, all you need to do is put the cost agreement in front of them and they go, where do I sign? Yeah, correct. Great. Um, Jason Papelier, thank you so much, mate. You're uh, advice is always uh, well sought after by me. Uh, and I, ha- as I've said, I think there's no doubt uh, what you've mentioned today. Uh, there are a number of potential podcast topics that we can explore in the future. Jace, thanks for so- again for so much for your time. Pleasure's all mine, Ben, and thanks for having me. Right. Ben, great chat with Jason. Uh, lots of good practical advice there for law firms. That's right, Dan. And what what I found from the conversation with Jason is that these are relatively simple things to implement within a practice. We're not talking about significant investments. We're not talking about major decisions. We're talking about just taking a, a, a firm line on what I want to be, where I want to go, and making that decision. For instance, putting in place a governance structure around decision making and where decisions can be made in the firm. Um to get that structure right with with the right amount of fee-earning staff, the right amount of support staff, but equally to really make a strong position in the market about what you're selling. Uh, and as you and I have talked about in the past, product is important and selling a product that your consumers understand. So, you know, as I said, I, I, was, I was quite uh, enlightened by Jason's views because, as I said, they're quite simple uh, and it's just about execution now. So... Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I really uh, I like the podcast, and I and I like the fact that uh, well, I like Jason's comments in relation to you know being very very uh, specific about who your clients are. You know, like who, who are we talking with? Because from a marketing perspective, I mean, that's just a, a primary objective that we try and nail at the front end. You know, most law firms will probably say that oh look, we're after anybody and everybody, but it's a hell of a lot easier to market practice when we've got a very very strong persona in mind. And uh, it was good to hear that from from an accounting guy like Jason. Yeah, absolutely. And there's probably a whole lot of content that you and I can dissect over future podcasts there, Dan, in in relation to uh, a product strategy and a marketing strategy and how that sales funnel works and all those various things. But really it does start with the product and being very, very clear on what that is and being uh, even those simple things like capturing the referral source of client matters. Why are clients coming to you? Where are they coming to you from? Um, and getting that information is really important to feed a marketing strategy. So I'm preaching and converted, uh, probably content for a future podcast, Dan. Sounds great, Ben. Uh, look, uh, good to join uh, you again uh, on another episode of the Practice Insiders podcast. And we will be back again with another Practice Insider. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Dan. Look forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Practice Insiders podcast. For free resources, including extended podcast interviews, webinars, and exclusive offers, head to practiceinsiders.com.